Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It is the most expensive purchase many of us even consider, a place to live. And as we head into 2019, a complicated landscape in real estate. For a decade in a rebounding U.S. economy amid cheap loans, home prices have pretty much marched steadily higher. When the market bottomed in February 2009, the median sale price for a home was about $140,000. Last month, it was nearly $258,000. Uh, That might sound okay if you're looking to sell a home, but not so fast. Interest rates are creeping higher, reducing how much buyers can borrow. And the number of homes for sale is rising, giving shoppers more homes to choose from. So, are we heading into a healthier housing market or a more dangerous one? Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. And joining me to talk real estate, I have the very best, CNBC's Diana Olick, Realtor.com CEO Ryan O'Hara, and real estate agent Josh Flagg of Bravo's Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles. Uh, Season 11 debuts on January 3rd, by the way. And later on the podcast, Intel's interim CEO Bob Swan joins me. Do not miss that. Diana, let's start talking about housing and 2019. We did this a year ago. People ate it up all year, continued to refer back to it. So I'm wondering, I want to start with sellers. If you're a potential seller in 2019, tell us about the landscape. I mean, what's different? What should you be prepared for? Well, John, it's easy. What a difference a year makes. A year ago, we were seeing bidding wars on front porches, multiple offers, home prices overheating. Uh, It was crazy out there. There was so much demand, so little supply. And that has all changed pretty dramatically in just the last six months. We've seen mortgage rates go up, now a full percentage point higher than they were a year ago. We're starting to see more supply come onto the market, not really at the entry level where we need it most, but in general, more supply, more months supply, because homes are sitting on the market longer. Buyers have simply said, I can't afford this anymore. I've hit the wall, and sellers have to get real. They have to lower prices, and they're doing that in a lot of places. In fact, we're now hearing word that prices could be going negative in California, the highest-priced housing market in the nation. For the rest of the nation, you're not going to see negative prices. That was something crazy that we saw you know, during the last housing crash. To see national home prices go negative is very, very rare. But we are going to see those big home price gains, those double-digit gains that we saw last year, the year before, really start to shrink back to... I have to say it, a normal housing market. How scary is that? Yeah, I mean, that that largely sounds healthy. I mean, I guess, what's the downside here? Because prices in in California have been going nuts for years now. A a, a little negative in California, I mean, all on the margins. How bad could that be? Uh, But are there there danger pockets here, either in uh, people getting into homes that they can't afford or the types of loans people are getting? What What do you see? 
No, not this time around. The difference here is the mortgage market. Mortgage underwriting has been very, very, and perhaps even overly careful over the last several years since the recession. So if you lose value on the house, it doesn't mean, most people today are in fixed rate mortgages anyway. They have been underwritten to that mortgage very carefully so that they can afford that monthly payment. So watching the home prices go negative a little bit, it's just on paper at this point. It's not going to affect how much you pay every month and it's not going to affect what you can afford. If the economy is still strong, if you still have a job, you still have a good income, you keep paying on the house and you hope that the home price will go up again. If you want to sell and you bought at the top of the market, then it might be a different story. Let's mm. say you bought, you know, last January and for some reason you have to sell your job moved and you got to sell in California. You might lose some money, but that's not going to be a lot of people and it's not going to be widespread. So you'll see the euphoria coming out of this market. But what that will do is allow more people to get into the market, to see more sales, because sales really slowed down this year, A, because there wasn't anything to buy, but then over the summer, B, because people couldn't afford what there was on the market to buy. So this will help more people get back into the market. I think you'll see things kind of flatline over 2019 when it comes to sales. There's still very strong demand. It's just just when those prices get back to where people can afford it, then they will start buying. It's the sellers, you know, you got to say, I can't reach for the sky. I have to be a realistic. What can I do to sell this home? But then there's another problem there is we need more supply. We need those sellers. But let's say you're a seller with a three and a half percent 30 year fixed mortgage. And now you want to move to another home, but you're going to be paying right. over five percent. Yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. That might keep me in my house. That make me maybe want to renovate the house because that's a hard thing to give up is that rock bottom rate that so many people refinanced into that rate. Now, tell me uh, one of the dangers, I think, is so often uh, People really want to live close in in a city, maybe where their job is, but it's unaffordable. So they start, you know, maybe buying something further out. Not their first choice. Millennials but it's don't more like to do that. Right? They hate that. They, no. Well, maybe they would they rather like live in a that. tiny little box downtown and pay a fortune for it than ride all the way out to the exurbs. And that's why the home builders aren't building cheap houses. They don't the want thing. to go out to the exurbs. Here's my question, Diana. Is in so many metropolitan areas, I know this is definitely true of the San Francisco Bay Area, if prices do turn down, if things do start to go south, it's those exurbs that feel it first and that feel it hardest. So uh, I, I'm looking at this list, markets that have more inbound traffic than outbound traffic right now. It's kind of a lot of those exurby feeling areas. Should buyers be cautious about moving into those areas, even if they have a long-term perspective? I'd, and not if they have a long-term perspective. I mean, the reason you move way out is because you want more space. You want better schools. You don't want to be downtown. Why? Because you have kids. And when you have kids, you're generally more stable. You don't want to move them. They like to be in their schools. So most people who are moving out to the suburbs or buying a big house, they intend to stay there maybe 10 years till the kids go to college. So I don't think that's going to be a problem in losing money out there. You're seeing money, you know, prices come down in the short term. They will stabilize and probably go back up again over the next five to ten years of course because historically home prices go up they just do values appreciate and if demand and if the economy remains strong you will see those prices go back up again it's just going to be a little dare I say correction that wasn't even my word that was one of a home builder analyst we spoke to yesterday John Burns from John Burns real estate consulting he's just the guru of home building and he said we're in a home builder correction right now you just have to see the prices pull back because as he said you know 
half of Americans can afford a $220,000 mortgage. That's all they can afford. But the average price of a newly built home, $440,000. Wow. So there's your mismatch yeah. going on with the builders. But the builders don't want to build out in the exurbs because it's riskier. They don't see the demand there. And therefore, they're building closer in, and that's more expensive for them. So they have to build more expensive homes. And that's the rub. Yeah, wow. That, that's 2x. Once again, this is Fort Knox. We are talking real estate as we look into 2019, what to expect, whether you're buying, selling. We'll get to refining also. And joining us now from San Francisco, let's bring it in Ryan O'Hara. He is the CEO of Move, which owns brands like Realtor.com, Move, List Hub, and Five Street. Ryan, great to have you. Um, what's the major kind of dominant overall trend that you expect to see in 2019? And then let's talk regions. First on affordability, because that has been a theme that I know Diana has been telling CNBC viewers about all year, and that has dominated. What happens with affordability? Yeah, thanks for having me, John. I'll say a couple things. We're seeing real trends from people looking on the coast to move into the, the interior states. So we have some interesting proprietary data from all the usage on the site. And we used to see people from small cities looking to the big cities, wanting to move there, wanting to see what inventory is like, what pricing was like. And we're now seeing the opposite, where we're seeing traffic in big cities looking at smaller cities. So a couple to note that I think are telling. Uh, we're seeing in Seattle, people in Seattle are looking at Spokane, Washington. Can they move there? Can they find a job there? Can they get more house? We're seeing the same from Boston up to Portland, Maine. We're seeing it with Miami and, and Daytona uh, going into the outskirts of Orlando. So we're seeing these trends where people in the big markets, they're seeing the pricing rise to levels they can't afford or they want to take advantage of and looking into, into smaller cities. But, I think we're also going to see some- boomers? Are, are these baby boomers or millennials? Because we have that huge generation downsizing. That would seem like maybe a retirement trend. I think it's both. I think baby boomers uh, have a higher percentage of home ownership. They're about 66% homeowners, whereas on the millennial side, it's more about 35%. So I think, as Diana said, millennials have been priced out of this market for a while. There's a huge rump of people, millennials, that haven't yet bought, and they really want to, but they've been priced out because prices have been so high. Now, will that change over the next year or two? We think in some places it will, and millennials will finally come into this market in a big way. Those markets, Ryan, that you're talking about, and Diana and I were just talking about this, um, say you're Spokane, say you're, you're Stockton uh, in California, outside the Bay Area, say some of those areas uh, outside Orlando, aren't those the same areas that 10 years ago got hit really hard when things turned down? I mean, do they tend to be perhaps uh, more volatile in certain seasons if people are thinking about buying there? Well, I think if you look at the, the local economies and you look at unemployment, which is really low in a lot of these cities, you look at wage growth, which is high, and you look at the amount of job creation that's happened in some of these cities, that's what's driving the market. It's the same in Milwaukee. We're seeing it in Indianapolis. We're seeing it in Memphis. A lot of these smaller cities really have robust economies, and people are moving there to take advantage of job creation, and also they can spend more and get more house. All right, Ryan, talk about uh, interest rates and the impact that's likely to have. Um, the Fed is expected to hike. You know, here we are in December, uh, just a few minutes, uh, as a matter of fact. But unclear what will happen throughout 2019. What's the impact on uh, how long homes stay on the market, the way uh, buyers start to view affordability uh, when rates do start inching higher? Well, higher interest rates definitely has a, a, a magnified impact on housing. So I think housing is more susceptible to, to increases in mortgage rates, for sure. I think what you're seeing is 
Um, the last couple months with mortgage rates about 70 to 100 basis points higher than year prior, the market did slow. So just this morning, the National Association of Realtors came out with their November sales, which were down 7%. I think that's really tied to mortgage rates. However, the last couple weeks, we have had a, a slowing in the increase in mortgage rates. I think today's Fed decision was expected, but the number of increases next year, I think people are thinking is lower than they were a month or two ago. So it could have an impact where the increase in mortgage rates slow. Today, we predict at the end of 2019, mortgage rates will hit 5.5%. The average during the year will be 5.3 versus today, 4.7, 4.8. So they will go up. They're historically really low, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but people feel like they might have missed their window and missed their, their moment to grab a great rate. So sometimes that makes people stay in their home and not make that trade, as Diana said. Diana, um, just kind of an offbeat question, maybe. And it's on, it's on the when to buy. Uh, I, I think we kind of know when to sell. There tends to be a lot of traffic spring and summer. But when to buy, did, did I hear that right around this time, if you're closing like the day after Christmas, you, you tend to get the best deals? Well, I mean, this is a funny story. We do it every year is that everybody thinks that the holiday season is the absolute worst time to buy or sell a house. And it is definitely the slowest time of year. It has the lowest inventory of homes for sale on the market. But the buyers who are out there are serious buyers because why else would you be out buying in December? You'd be out wanting to have fun, do something else. Buying a home is not particularly fun. And why would you sell in December unless you really had to sell in December? So. Deals do get made and they get made much more quickly and perhaps you can get a deal as a buyer or maybe, you know, even as a seller if there's competition. Deals are good for the making in December because there's just not very much out there and there's not very much buyer competition. That said, there's not a lot to choose from. So is it a good time to buy in December? Sure. Is it better in the spring when there's lots out there to choose from? Well, it might be in the, cho in the choices, but you're going to have a lot of other competition around you, so you might not get the price that you really want. You might not get the seller to come down to what you want. So, you know, timing the, timing the real estate market is like timing the stock market. It's like timing anything. It's impossible. You can have theories. You can look at some of the comps on, you know, what sells when and where, depending on the weather. But in general, you buy and sell a home when you have to buy and sell a home, and the most available homes are in the spring. The fall is probably the second best time. You don't have as many families out looking for homes because nobody wants to move their kids during the school year. So again, you have more single buyers out. You have people looking at lower price, smaller homes. There's a little more wiggle room in the pricing. And then December's that you know weird phenomenon that I just said. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to bring another voice into the conversation on the high end, the very high end. Joining us now from Los Angeles, he's a co-star of Bravo's Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles. You can also catch him on his Josh Flagg YouTube vlog. Here's Josh. Uh, Josh, thanks for being with us. Um, tell me, first of all, you do big deals, a lot of big homes in and around Los Angeles. What kind of trends are you seeing these days in, in that set, which is very different from the broader market that we've been talking about? Well, I, you know what? I have to say, Diana gave a great, she basically said everything I was going to say. So, Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's okay. You literally, well, it's interesting because I, I, sometimes I think, do I know what Talk I'm talking about? Talk about the taxes. Talk about salt. <laughs> Let me, okay, this is what I'm, basically, if you actually look at, um, aside from my vlog, I have something that's becoming pretty good, which is a trendy, which is becoming Josh Flag blog. And on the blog, literally, we are discussing exactly what you've said. And so let's talk about when is the right time to buy? And this is a theory that I've come up with. 
I feel that even though prices are higher now than they're going to be next year, there's no question prices are softening. Would I rather have a $50,000 a month, or sorry, let me just talk in normal, not LA terms. Would I rather have a $5,000 a month mortgage or a $7,000 a month mortgage when interest rates climb? So sure, if I'm living in a house for 30 years, why, do I, why would I care if I paid a little bit more, a little bit less? Because the house is gonna be worth 10 times more in the future. But do I care if I'm paying 5,000 a month or 7,000 a month? Certainly, I would rather pay on a, I would rather be at a, at a, at a better interest rate. So. Now is really honestly, you know, when they say this is the time to strike, I honestly think now is the time to strike. Yes, you'll be paying a little bit more for the house, but you are going to be paying far less because I remember when interest rates were, well, I wasn't born, but I do remember interest rates I heard were at one time at 22%. So, um, but I do remember when they were 12%. So what I'm basically saying is it is okay and it is healthy for a market to correct itself. This is not going to be 2018. But if you bought a house last year, yes, if you have to sell right away, you're going to lose some money. But if you bought, the market has climbed dramatically in the last two years. So if you bought a house two years ago and compare it to what you're going to sell it for today, you're still over, you're still ahead. It, you might have a problem if you bought it last year. But now is the time to get deals because the reason the market markets start to drop, honestly, is because there's not a lot of inventory, interest rates go up, and sellers are stupid and they just keep at these ridiculously high prices. And when people see properties listed at high prices and they sit on the market and get price reductions, people see this happening all the time. And then mentally, it turns a buyer thinking, uh-oh, we're having a market that's falling, when it doesn't even need to really happen. If people were not so greedy, and I don't know if you agree with this, Diana, if people were not so greedy and sellers, if they were not so greedy and they would just be a little bit more realistic, they're hurting themselves because you have all these spec developments coming on the market at the same time. All of them are asking 35 million, all these crazy numbers, and they're just going to sit there and it creates an illusion that the market is dropping as they keep doing price reductions. Yeah. I don't know if you agree with me. Diana, yeah, what do you no, think? That's my first... Always, always better to slightly underprice a home and sell it fast for more 100%. money even than to overprice a home and sit and go stale and everybody says, what's wrong with this? What's well, wrong no, with not the just, market? Yeah, but not... Yeah, but not just for the seller. And I always say price your property, right? And you'll get multiple offers. It's nobody ever believes me, but that's a whole different story. But aside from that, do you agree with me that it creates an illusion when you keep seeing all these stupid sellers and, and, and uh, developers listing their properties for ridiculous amounts of money because they think they're going to get it. And when you see 20 of them across the board and you start seeing price, it creates an illusion for buyers out there that the market is dropping when it really doesn't have to. Exactly. No, that, I don't know if it's an illusion or reality that the market has to be lower than it is and what they're listing and then when it, they can't they say the sky's limit. I, I do see that from a buyer perspective, you're going to say, what's wrong with this market? And I'm not going to go into this market if I see 20 homes that are sitting there. And then, especially on the high end, when you see these ginormous price drops, which on a percentage level are not that much, but oh, this you know $50 million house is now selling for $40 million. Oh my God. Well, that's a crash. Well, it's an in the illusion market. and a reality. I think but it's it never both. should it's have been listed at fifty million. No, no, no. no. What I'm saying is, I a hundred percent. What I'm saying is, it's overpriced and it's it's good in some. It's it's a reality because the market should soften a bit. But I think right. it softens faster because yes. nobody thought ahead of time. Let's be a little bit more careful and delicate. Let's not really all go for these crazy prices. <laughs> it, we could soften a lot slower than it would. But let's yeah, talk right. about. Um, it, yeah, the, the so it's an illusion and a reality. The psychology is clearly a, a big part of this, and not just when it comes to pricing. Ryan, I want to bring you back in because the taxes are a part of this conversation are going to be in 2019 in a way they weren't before because of the way that tax laws 
recently changed. I mean, uh, th there's a set of people who are going to end up taking the standard deduction who thought that they were going to be writing off their mortgage interest, right? Uh, once we come down under that luxury set and we're talking about uh, the bulk of maybe middle class, upper middle class home buyers, how's that going to affect the market? I think it's a big question, and I think people are going to feel yeah. it in April when they file their taxes. I think if you look going forward, that $10,000 cap on both mortgage interest and also your state tax deduction, it's going to hit a lot of people in the pocketbook. So I think at the higher end, I think the, the estimates we've seen and we've studied, it's sort of 8 to 10% of, of, of uh, households will feel it. But at the high end, it's really going to be an impact. It's going to be more expensive to own your home. Now, look, those folks can afford homes and will stay in homes. And a home's more than an investment. It's the fabric of your life, and it is everything about your family and your community. So people will stay in nice homes. But I do think it makes the cost of hiring housing go up, especially in the high-tax states. Diana, uh, how quickly does the psychology really change around something like that, though? It seems like uh, it, it could sometimes take years in, for people to in, in shift second, the way they think about stuff. In a, really? No, in, in a, a heartbeat. In a heartbeat in a place like Manhattan. Now, I'm not saying, you got to look at these right. numbers. We did the math when the tax law was all being changed. We did the math. Oh, good. And the, these tax changes really don't affect the vast either? majority of homeowners. It does seriously affect Jackson the high right. end in Manhattan and in parts of California, that luxury owner. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago owns a co-op on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, gorgeous, on Park Avenue, wants to sell, downsizing baby boomer, and says he's terrified to sell into this market because he thinks that when it's already soft on the Upper East Side, on the Upper East Side, it's already soft. And he's <laughs> saying that he's afraid that in April, when people start doing their taxes, as we're saying, they're going to start to really see what this impact is. Nobody's going to want to buy. Nobody's going to want to sell to buy something else in the area, people are going to want to. He wants to move to Florida, and I'm hearing from Florida realtors that they're getting a lot of people moving out of New York to take advantage of the better tax situation in Florida. But he is petrified that the Manhattan market is going to stagnate because of taxes and that it's all going to come to roost in April when people finally see those numbers on their own tax returns. Uh, Josh, California is another one of those states that uh, gets hit here. Your clientele, again, a little bit different, sensitivities to different kinds of things. How much is the tax situation uh, change playing into your conversations and the way you're positioning things? You know, let's go there in a second, but I was just thinking, I don't know, Diana, maybe you can answer this for me or what you think. I'm thinking, you know, the reason New York dropped so much is because it was so over the top crazy prices. Whereas I think Los Angeles, even though people are like, oh, my God, $2,000 a foot. Uh, yeah, it's like $14,000 a foot in New York. And think of all you get in the, uh, the, the amenities you get in Los Angeles. That's why I think that we were underpriced for a long time, believe it or not. And I think that we kind of caught up to where we should be. So that's why I don't think we're going to see a tremendous drop, whereas New York went exponentially high, much higher than it actually is. Well, New York was a problem with a bifurcated market. You had an oversupply of condominiums being built, and condos got very, very popular with foreign investors because you could buy, you could rent them out, you could um, you could sell shell them quickly and flip them. And well, I'm I'm not going to go there on the <laughs> shelf. I'm just not going to go there right now. But condos are a lot easier, and there's such an oversupply of them. The the building boom in condos and rentals apartment in Manhattan and in the boroughs is just phenomenal. But when you talk about, you know, that standard co-op, that thing that Manhattan is known for, the Upper West, the Upper East, 
those that are harder to get financing on that you have to be approved in the building. You know, yeah, those did those not anymore. get as high priced as the condos did. And then you had the foreign investors kind of pulling back, the dollar changing, you know, the values against foreign currency. So, you know, you were seeing weakness in the Manhattan market condos to begin with. But the fact that it's trickling into the co-ops, that's what I still consider real New York, and I have to admit, because I am a real 100% New Yorker. 100% agree with even, you. Even though I, I live in Washington. I would rather live in a co-op. I grew up in New York, and, and I just feel like that's the heart of the market. And when you see that soften and you see that fear of the, the salt, you know, the tax changes, that, that's really having an impact. Yeah, Josh, well, I would salt. much rather give me, that, own. give me that tax impact lowdown that you promised. I'm sorry, one more time? The tax impact. You said you were going to get to that. Oh, yeah. Um, well, there's two issues that we can talk about. I don't know if you're, if you're referring to not deducting interest uh, or uh, on your mortgage, or if you're talking about the, you can't deduct your property taxes anymore. Which one do you want to start it's with? It's the property taxes is the big one. I don't think the mortgage interest deduction affects that many people. Uh, well, not in my market, but in the middle of the country it does. Right, but depending, in the middle no. of the country is much lower price, so the cap isn't going to affect the vast majority of those homeowners accurate, but their incomes, well, that's a whole different, okay. But anyway, the point I'm making is um, pro property taxes, not being able to deduct them, I think is, I mean, it's a huge problem. Um, I don't think it's going to affect people that are in the income brackets that I sell houses to because it's just annoying for them. But if you're buying a house and you're, uh, you're expecting to spend, have a hundred and have, have a, let's say a 40 or $80,000, $100,000 a year tax bill, if you can afford that, you can certainly afford the $50,000. You can afford not to deduct them. It's just a real annoyance because it sucks. Like, oh, shit. Now, sorry. Oops. Sorry. Oh, you know, I just have an extra expense of $100,000 a year when I thought I would be able to deduct them. But I don't think that's going to affect our market. Um, Ryan, uh, tie, this, tie a bow around this for us, if you will. Uh, with all of the changes, both macro um, that are happening right now in terms of interest rates, and then uh, changes that'll be coming into the fore that actually happened quite a while ago, tax-wise, uh, as people are entering the real estate market in 2019, buyers, sellers, what's the overall feel, the overall message for what they should be looking out for the attitude they should have, the numbers they should be looking at uh, as they get into action in the year. Right, and I'm glad I got to bring it back. When you really look across the whole country, next year we think prices will be up 2%, listings and sales will be down 2%. It's actually a pretty healthy equilibrium market, and it'll be that way next year. So while we talk about the high-end has issues and certain cities on the coast have issues, overall housing is pretty healthy, and especially with the Fed slowing down rates, as it seems like they will, I think that's going to give a, a little bit of a boost to what was a slowing market. So I think my, my uh, feeling on the housing is it's still a really good investment for people. It's beyond an investment because you get to enjoy where you're putting your money with your family and with your community. So to me, it's a really good investment over the long period of time as long as you take that, that, that framework. And I think housing, while there'll be pockets of highs and lows, I think overall it's pretty steady. All right. Well, I guess people should uh, hang in there, think long term. Uh, next up on the podcast, Intel's chief financial officer and interim CEO, Bob Swan. Bob Swan, Chief Financial Officer and Interim CEO at Intel. I put it that way because you made it clear you don't want to be permanent CEO. That's right. Why is that? You know, I, as, as we've talked about before, I love my job. I've been a CFO for a long time. I'm never 
too terribly worried about what the middle initial is in my title. And I think uh, this company deserves a phenomenal CEO, and I'm very excited about working with him or her once it gets uh, determined to make this special company that I've been fortunate enough to join to make it even better. How eager are you to see that person come in the door? Um, I think it would be great. You know, I think it's been, it'll be six months this, this week, mm -hmm. uh, six months. And um, in many ways, John, the, the um, you know, sometimes crisis will either pull teams apart or they'll make them stronger. And mm -hmm. in this case, the six months, I think, has been great for the company because the team really stepped in collectively to fill the void. And our message to the board early on was take your time. Um, you know, get to the right decision. This is the biggest open job on the planet, and it's a great job. Therefore, don't rush for the sake of speed. Take your time on quality. And the management team was, you know, kind of, and we've got this. We'll, we'll be fine during the transition. Just don't feel the need to rush. Oh. And even though you have um, internal people in the process and external people, I think everybody realized that, look, we have so much to do in the company and so many opportunities and some days so many challenges we don't really have the time for distractions so let's just kind of come together and continue to push the company forward so all that being said it's six months um initially when um when um i stepped in to do the role i didn't quite think it would take this long so i didn't I didn't uh, ask somebody to step into the CFO role. Right. Uh, I thought it'd be kind of quick, and why introduce additional disruption? Uh huh. So six months later, I'm anxious to have one job, not two. Right, and, and I guess on the one hand, if you were to have somebody step into that role now, it might make things take even longer. So people feel like, okay, now Bob's got some. But then on the other hand, if <laughs> yeah. you don't, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. got a lot on your plate, right? I'm I'm optimistic that the you know the board has been working this pretty hard. This is um, you know they're 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 extremely diligent about it. They'll rally around whatever decision they make, so you'll have the board really aligned about whomever it is. And there's a lot of activity going on. So I don't I'm not worried that it's going to be another 6 months by any stretch. Uh, I'm uh, I'm hopeful that it'll be relatively soon, but if it's not, that's okay. It's a, it's a good company and we'll we'll just be fine. And this hasn't been a period where everything is just completely simple smooth sailing autopilot either. You guys are, are dealing with the cloud transformation. You're dealing with your data-centric focus moving away from being uh, just all about the PC. Yeah. How have you brought your particular skills and perspective to bear in keeping that kind of transformation going, yeah. even as you're in this leadership transition? Yeah. You know, for me, a lot of, um, a lot of the things um, that we're trying to do didn't start six months ago. Mm. Um, you know, we started a number of years ago with a point of view that we have this wonderful special PC business that, you know, is half the revenues of the company that generates the lion's share of the profits that fuels the innovation. It's the capital that fuels the innovation. So we, we kind of looked at that world and said, we think in light of these massive demands for data, that we have a real opportunity to extend the horizons of the company and no longer talk about ourselves as a um, 
90% share uh, mar uh, uh, business in a market with slow growth and only down mm -hmm. to one that's just a much bigger market. So we look at the world today with, we have these wonderful capabilities. We have a wind at our back. The wind at our back is that um, the amount of data that people want, you know, uh, crave to, whether you're a consumer or a business, just this flood of data and the need to process it and analyze it and store it and retrieve it is just growing and growing and growing. And therefore, we have an opportunity to extend our wings. Mm -hmm. And so we've been either organically or acquisitively buying up the technologies um, or the markets that we think are going to be big needle movers for the company. So we've been on this journey and in some cases around the edges, um, you know, we can do things better. Uh, there's new opportunities that emerge, but the idea that this, this data era is going to play to our strengths is one that's been fairly consistent. The Altera move was important. Yeah. Uh, FPGA is just the, the ability to do more customization. At the same time, uh, I was just talking to Andy Jassy a couple weeks ago. Amazon building some of its own chips, designing some of its own chips through uh, Annapurna for the cloud. Yeah. It, it seems like a little bit of that is okay, but you guys don't want to see too much of it, right? Yeah, um, um, no, we don't necessarily <laughs> want to see too much of it, but we do want to see is the ability to deploy technologies in our customers' environments that will fuel and get the network effects of desires for data grow and grow and grow. So to the extent that, I think it's the realization that a lot of our customers are going to uh, test and try new technologies in their environment to provide a broader set of services to mm -hmm. their clients. And that at times will mean, you know, it'll not just be our IP powering their data centers, but it'll be other people's IP as well. And you get to the point where it's like you're co-developing a chip that's specifically for a mega scale cloud provider? Absolutely. I mean, we're, our heritage is general purpose compute. Yeah. But in this hyperscaling world, the needs and desires for our customers to customize the silicon for their environment is growing. Mm -hmm. So one cloud service provider is silicon, they want to be able to optimize the role the CPU and the other accelerators play in their environment, and they need a partner that can not just push general purpose, but can push customization so they can optimize their environment because their workloads are different and they're evolving. So they want a partner that can adjust and adapt to deal with the evolving reality of what they have to deal with. So our customization today is way bigger than it's ever been, and I think that will continue to be the case. So I imagine you guys want to approach the likes of an Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera, and say, yeah, I know you guys are watching the way you use your data centers, your cloud data centers, you, you have unique needs. We are positioned to design a chip that addresses what you want to do with AI. Uh, to help you with that better than you could do it on your own. I mean, is that, is that what you go in and say after you see them roll out what they, what they have been rolling out just yeah, on their yeah. own? I mean, first, um, we've been um, working together with them for a decade. So um, it's not so much a sales call about how we would love the world to be, mm -hmm. but it's been more a 10-year journey of working with the technologists, working with their technologists about 
how is it that they are trying to grow their business and what's important to them and then from that you know showing flexibility on our side that we're not just going to push what works for us but in light of your needs we have the inherent technology and the capabilities to offer you a broader set of arrays to deal with your workloads better than we think anybody else in the world now we recognize that each of them are going to want to build their own silicon at times or try other people's silicons but the challenge for us is to stay ahead of the game and helping solve their problems by bringing together the technologies that power their environment whether whether it's a CPU with AI functionality built into it whether it's a separate AI chip whether it's memory whether it's FPGAs and how these technologies stitch together to make their environment more effective is what is where our breadth of offerings becomes, we think, a real differentiator. But we start with what is it that you are trying to do in your environment, and then how is it that we work together to help you get there? But it's a technology discussion that we've been having for a decade with each one of the kind of cloud service providers. Let's talk about um, labor and location. Mm -hmm. Lately, we've seen uh, Amazon do this sort of sweepstakes thing with deciding where to put two big campuses it turned out Google is uh, planning lots of new locations including uh, south of where they are now in San Jose Apple just announced Austin San Diego uh, Culver City other places but Intel's had multiple locations for quite a while yeah. uh, a more mature company when it comes to this sort of thing headquarters is in Santa Clara but you've got Oregon uh, you've got New Mexico, just in the U.S., uh, for example. As it gets more expensive to live in these major metropolitan areas like the Bay Area, how is your strategy shifting or adapting, given that you already have different places? Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about it, uh, the, the, the team had thought about this um, uh, long before I arrived. We have 107,000 people around the globe, but in, in Northern California, it's less than 10,000, including uh, Folsom in the Santa Clara area. But it's, you know, it's less than 10% of our overall workforce is in Northern California. Our real hubs, to your point, are we have a massive both technology and fab center in Oregon. It's almost 20,000 uh, 20, employees. Mm -hmm. We have significant presence in Arizona, Arizona another big fab. We have a presence in New Mexico. So in the U.S., we have a pretty broad and diversified footprint because not only the technology and the skills that have evolved over time, but also we need to make sure for our customers that we, we don't have any one uh, single point of failure when it's our technologies that are powering the technologies that power the world. We can't really afford for a fab to go down and not have real backup. So redundancy matters. So we've had a significant both tech and fab environment in Israel. Israel is a huge location for us. Bigger now with the addition of our acquisition of Mobileye. Um, Ireland is a huge location for us. We have a manufacturing plant for memory in China. We have assembly and test in China and Vietnam and Malaysia. So over the years, we've built out a diversified portfolio of sites, if you will, where we could attract real talent, provide a good 
environment for the communities in which we operate. And we have relatively large presence around the world today, but it's very concentrated. So what should the Googles and Apples and Amazons know about what it means to really run a business through major locations that they might not know already being relatively young. I mean, yes, they've had employees all over the place before, but what they're doing now is more building out different hubs. A lot of them haven't really had that before. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'm, that they need my advice on how to run their companies, nor do I uh, suggest that we figured it all out. But right. I mean, the practical reality is whether you're in one location with 15 buildings, or in multiple locations around the globe, uh, vehicles of communication and deploying technology so you would engage when you're not in the room becomes more and more important. And th these, are, these are large companies with massive uh, employees and you know, fewer locations, but they're pretty smart and I'm pretty confident they'll figure it out and the last thing in the world they need from me is um, <laughs> how do they build out their office environment. Um, yeah, smart people take advice where they can get it, I guess. Uh, as you've seen Silicon Valley change, particularly over the past five, ten years, what do you think are, are, are the challenges for a center of innovation yeah. that has gotten increasingly unlivable, especially for new people trying to get in at almost any income level? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I think, one, there's obviously a challenge of recruiting today's talent in these higher-cost regions, and there's also How a... How do you do it? Um, if I could, there's yeah. also a, uh, a bit of a community responsibility of the role you play in that community when you're putting big presence there. So, and we try, to, we try to find that balance of what is our role in the community, what is our role as a large employer, and what is our role as an attractive place to work. And for the most part, you know, we, we've, um, we're, because of our... Um, uh, diverse geographic makeup, we're flexible about where, and because we've been dealing with it for a while, yeah. we're flexible about where our employment goes. For example, I mean, I joined the company two years ago as the CFO, and almost, almost my entire staff is in Oregon. So once they get settled, they get their roots, their kids are in school, and we use technology to communicate and we travel back and forth. So for the most part, flexibility of where the jobs are, and given that we have large concentrated presences, people have the opportunity to go to a variety of different places. So offering flexibility and then the tools and the technology to enable effective communication has been a part of the fabric of what we've been trying to do. Is that part of the recruiting strategy at this point where you tell people, hey, you can, you sure. can live in Oregon. Sure. Increasingly so, I imagine. Very flexible in terms of how we attract talent to join our company and to the extent that it's not cost uh, 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 feasible to attract people into a particular location, maybe Santa Clara, um, we're very flexible about where our, our employees uh, work. I want to talk about you and your journey uh, into tech and into being a CFO. You grew up out here on the East Coast? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Syracuse, New York. When did you start paying attention to finance? Um, well, I went to, I started in business school. So I think in high school, I, um, I was uh, maybe better with numbers than I was with words. And then I just kind of gravitated to, to numbers over time. And, Right out of business school, um, I, joined, uh, I joined General Electric in finance, and 
I loved it uh, because of the, um, for me, the, the power of numbers to tell a story and, and, and shape outcomes. So from a very early stage, I just, I like dealing with numbers and as such, one great job after another, one new opportunity to work with different people after another, and before you know it, at a relatively young age, um, GE was um, kind enough to put me in a divisional CFO job that I probably didn't quite deserve, <laughs> but they said I probably won't screw it up too much. And from there, I've been either a, you know, a CFO of a division or a public company CFO for... Um, 94, so 25 years. Tell me about that first division CFO job at GE. Who, who gave you the nod for it and how daunting was it? <laughs> so um, the decision makers, um, um, Jack Welch, Dennis Dammerman, who was the CFO of the company as a whole, and uh, Bob Nardelli was the CEO of the locomotive business. So those were the three um, those were the three kind of decision makers, and at the time it was, it was, it was um, somewhat comical, maybe. <laughs> okay. Where, um, yeah, my my wife and I, um, we had been married for less than a year, mm -hmm. and she had asked me somewhere along the way. I did. I I had spent a stint of three months in Erie, Pennsylvania, while we were dating, and she came to visit me. Mm -hmm. And when she visited, it was cold and rainy and not so nice and she said hey whatever you do if we ever come together whatever you do please don't ever ask me to move to Erie Pennsylvania <laughs> and then wind the clock forward I get a call from uh, Dennis Dammerman and, and Bob Nardelli and they said we have a great idea for you and uh, what do you think about going to uh, Erie Pennsylvania to work with Bob Nardelli and I said Dennis that sounds fantastic except you know that I just got married and along the way I promised my wife that I would never call her and ask her if we could go to Erie and he said oh that's too bad and I said hey, just out of curiosity what what's the role and he said it's the CFO to work with Bob Nardelli I said, Dennis, do you mind if I call you right back? <laughs> because I didn't feel like I was quite ready. And they were comfortable enough to give me the opportunity. And uh, my wife and I went there, and we absolutely loved Erie, Pennsylvania. Well, you, but you skipped the best part. What did your wife say? She <sighs> said almost the exact same thing that I did. Sandra, I know I promised you that I'd never call you and ask you if you would move to Erie. Um, and she said, yes. And I said, what do you think about moving to Erie? <laughs> and she said, why? And I told her, and she said, what job? And I said, it's the CFO job. And she said, can I call you back? <laughs> so her response to me, she, she had worked at GE before uh, going back to grad school. So okay. she knew a little bit about the culture of the company. And she knew this was a very special opportunity for me. So we did it and we loved it and never, she never looked back. Did she call somebody? No, I think she just called and processed. <laughs> okay. Right. How similar was that process? I mean, that's early. I know first year of marriage, but that's like, how similar is that to what you as a leader with a dynamic career have had to do with your partner as new roles and opportunities have come up? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, in some ways, um, 
So uh, Sandra and I went through this um, multiple times, and that's the way leadership development operated at GE at the time. You learn something, you they determine whether you're on the fast track or not, and then they, you know, it's a fairly sprawling company, and then they kind of pick you up and move you. And to a certain extent, it was a very, it was a great development experience. And when it was just me, it was really cool. When it was Sandra and I, it was kind of cool. And then when we had two little children, it was much less cool. Yeah. So if you, if you wind the clock forward, um, I think, and it goes back to kind of the, the, the infrastructure at, um, at Intel, um, there's big places and we're much more flexible, I think. I think I'm much more flexible on uh, where talent is located. And I think part of it is because the trade-offs that Sandra and I made along the way that um, I don't necessarily, if I don't have to, want to put people in that decision to be able to demonstrate their greatness by having to relocate. Mm. If we can get them to demonstrate their greatness in some other geography that has modest, modest um, complications in terms of interacting and communicating, that's much better if they you know, have their roots and they have their homes. So I think those early days of moving quite a bit help influence me in terms of how I recruit and hire and retain and develop talent is to be a little more flexible because everybody doesn't want to make the trade-offs that Sandra and I made along the way. I talk about the future of work a lot. I'm pretty deeply involved uh, in our At Work series that looks at capital, productivity, and talent and how they mm -hmm. uh, intersect to help shape that future. I think it's really interesting what you're saying because the, the way that you expect that talent is gonna come into the company influences where you invest. Yeah. Uh, it, it influences perhaps the technologies that you invest in to help a, uh, a team to communicate, to collaborate, and come to market with a product. Uh, what do you expect the future to be when it comes to talent? Will there be more of that flexibility necessarily because of how we see cities developing, because of how we see, I don't know, the, the, the cost of living stratifying? I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, um, um, you have young children, my children are a little bit older than yours, and they, they see the, the world in a completely different light. And their comfort in dealing with technology, um, whether it's in the the palm of their hand, whether it's the ability to access information from the palm of their hand in a relatively short period of time, how they, how they transport in a car that they don't necessarily have to drive. I mean, the role that technology plays in the access to technology and information is at our fingertips, not necessarily in the office. So I think um, my children are much more comfortable dealing with distance. And our ability to communicate with them is much different than my ability to communicate with my parents a few years ago. Right. Um, so I think the practical reality of flexibility for today's work environment is just so much more important. And then when you put on top of that a global company like ours, where you have sites and locations and interdependencies around the world, you have to be able to allow for flexibility, but also deploy the technology to stitch together the communications required to build strong teams. And as you know, John, strong teams are the differentiation of how well you compete and win in today's environment. It's not about 
individual, uh, uh, individual capabilities as much as it is about how uh, human capital comes together to form the basis of the whole of the team's performance is greater than the sum of the pieces. And I do think it one of the key components as flexibility. Once again, bringing it back to a headline, you mentioned the global distribution of Intel. How much harder is it to operate in an environment where Brexit looks challenging? What's going to happen between yeah. Ireland, Northern Ireland? You know, the EU is having its challenges right now. There's trade friction between countries in the U.S. that, that we're, where we're not used to seeing it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's funny um, uh, you ask how much harder is it. I'd probably say you should see how much more exciting it is. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, I mean, just, I mean, think about our company. Um, the, the intellectual stimulus of dealing with all these things is fascinating. I, like, it's like the coolest job. You know, what is going on in all these different markets and your ability to deal with them and risk mitigate and capitalize on opportunities that were created is what makes the job so exciting. And what makes the role that we play as a, uh, a neighbor of technology around the world that much more exciting. Now, is the there ability. a risk of overstimulation or? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. like right, you know, right around 7.30 p.m. every day, there's this overstimulation where you just want to go, wait, uh, tilt, overboard. Um, so yeah, but it's a, um, I mean, it makes for an extremely exciting environment. And then just the ability to you know, go and uh, meet with the team in, in Malaysia or meet with the team in India or meet with the team in Ireland and engage with them about some of the challenges that they're dealing with. It's a fascinating part of, you know, being a part of a big global company. And so, yeah, some days there's over, you're overly stimulated by the complexity and the challenges, but I'm not actually sure I'd want it any other way. Hmm. And, I, you know, to a certain extent, these... Um, large global jobs um, I've been dealing for a while. I'm almost paranoid, paranoid about the boredom of not dealing with it as opposed to um, nervous and freaking out about the practical realities of the day-to-day -day life. Uh, we, we find it fun. Um, speaking of uh, potential overstimulation, when you look back at your old employer, mm -hmm. GE, mm -hmm. and the challenges that they're having right now, so many uh, former GE or so many alums, it's, it's gut-wrenching for them to see the company yeah. going through that. What's the importance of GE and do you see, I'm not looking for specific uh, recommendations, but on a macro level, on a values level, a leadership level, a way out for a company in that situation? Yeah. Um, I mean, first, um, it was, you know, the first 15 years of my professional career, it was a fascinating time. It was a wonderful company. It's where I it's where I met my wife. It's where our best man was from. So it holds a very special place in, you know, in our in our in our life. So um, I really I really love the company. Um, I'm convinced that they're going to figure it out. Um, there's I mean, there's extremely talented people. The journey they've been through. Um, you know, I think for you know for me, you know, okay. How do I make sure? I mean, the, 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 they've gone through a phenomenal company, quite a challenging journey. Um, what did they learn? And from those challenges, there's great learnings. And to the extent you capitalize on those learnings, you'll avoid the likelihood that you do it again 
or in their case, increase the likelihood that they get out. The company I was in, it was a long time ago now, but it's a learning company. And it's, a, you know, it's an intellectually curious culture. And my, my sense, I, I, hope, um, I hope that they dig their way out and become a very special company again. It's a, it was an important part of my development, and I'm incredibly appreciative of the journey I had at GE. Mm. How do you look at China and the intellectual property um, issue there in particular, as far as its ranking and importance to Silicon Valley right now. Intel is one of many companies that have either uh, done joint ventures or engaged with that market mm -hmm. in various ways. And it looks like now all sorts of things are on the table and how that process might change in the future. Yeah. I mean, first, China is a very big market for us. And it's big in, in, in many ways. We have a big employment base there. We have large and growing customers there. It's our you know, second largest geography, and we have lots of big customers that we play a pretty important role in their success. We have a lot of global OEMs who do a lot of assembly there. So how we work with them to deal with um, the inherent risk of the cost of their products going up is important. So working with our global OEMs to help them mitigate inherent risk of uh, trade dynamics and, and imposition of tariffs is really important for us. And third, we have a pretty big manufacturing presence there. So it's a big, important market for us in a lot of ways. And our, our bias in our position is that global trade is really important for this uh, country. It's really important for the semiconductor industry because in the grand scheme of things, it's been a net exporter for a very long time, and it's very important for Intel. So we try to the extent we can um, have a point of view about our view about global trade and how important it is, but also recognizing the fact that we don't control all the variables and how do we um, how do we ensure that we can mitigate inherent risk that comes along the way? When it relates to IP in particular, I mean, our company, um, our, our IP is our company. Mm -hmm. So, and we, um, we've had to, you may remember a book by one of our founders, Only the Paranoid Survived. Uh -huh. That's alive and well in the <laughs> Intel culture. And the most important thing about paranoia for us is IPs are lifeblood, we need to protect our IPs. So no matter what geography we're in, no matter what um, facility that we open, the protection of our IP is absolutely critical. So it's always been a part of the makeup of Intel is that you have to protect your IP. So we've been doing that no matter where we set up shop is making sure that we can protect our IP, but also partner as markets and regions of the world evolve, and we know we'll have to continue to do that um, as we continue to grow the company. Do I understand that to mean you're comfortable with how you've been able to do that in China and don't see the need for um, too many changes there? Um, we're comfortable with a, uh, a global, a facilitation of, of, of policies that facilitate global trade. Um, and. We have a large market presence and strong relationships with customers in China. And we want to ensure that 
um, policies help us continue to operate in the way we become accustomed to over time. At the same time, we do think protection of IP is extremely important. And whether it's, whether it's policy or regulation or things that we can control in the technology that we've developed, that has always been an important part of our company and will be going forward. Bob Swan, I appreciate it all the time. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. I am John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new, and it's a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. It's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of this conversation. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured areas. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.